0: ora and welcome to Deloitte New Zealand's State of the State 2019 podcast series. I'm Dave Lovett, Deloitte's Public Sector Lead, based here in Wellington. In this short podcast series, we'll be looking at our 2019 State of the State article series. In it, we explore inequities from different perspectives, how these inequities affect us, and what we can do to reduce them. To build a fair future for all Kiwis. This series has been written in partnership with Victoria University of Wellington's School of Government. In this episode, I'm joined by co author of Article 2, Professor Giron Karajolu, head of Victoria University of Wellington's School of Government, and guest Keith McLeod, analytical consultant who has extensive public sector experience, having worked at the Treasury, MB. And the Ministry of Social Development. Thank you both for joining me here today. Thanks, Dave. We're going to be talking about the first two articles from this year's State of the State, which set the scene for why tackling inequities is so important for well-being in New Zealand, and a look at the challenges we face. If you haven't already, you can read these articles at deloitte.com/nz/state-of-the-state. So maybe starting with you Keith, how how do we identify and measure inequities in New Zealand? Uh, Thanks
1: Dave, Um, there are a number of different ways that we can can, uh, measure inequities, Um, generally speaking uh, a lot of the source information we get comes from surveys that are run often by Statistics New Zealand, Uh, more and more we've been using administrative data that's collected by government agencies in the course of their business and linking that together, and Statistics New Zealand holds a a data set called the Integrated Data Infrastructure, which brings a lot of that together and adds a lot of value. And there are a couple of different ways we can look at things. Generally speaking, um, we, we can break down the population in different ways by some characteristics that we observe in the population. So we can compare how men are doing compared to women, how different age groups are doing according to different measures, and so on. We can look at different ethnic groups and other things that are collected in the data. The other way we can cut it is by looking at how well uh, people at one end of the distribution are doing compared to people at the other end. So we can do some sorts of comparisons of uh, how much the top 10% of income earners, for example, uh, are earning compared to the bottom 10% and that sort of thing, which we'd often talk about as being a a vertical distribution. So there there are those different ways of, of looking at things. May I ask,
2: um, Keith, what is it that um, we are actually measuring? Because the reason I ask that is um, I come to it from a well-being perspective. Yes. And um, I start with the proposition that well-being is about um, uh, giving people the opportunities and capabilities to live the lives they value. Sure. And then we go to various bits of work around the world, including OECD, and say what are the kind of things people value. And then we go to the sources of that in terms of capital stocks. So it's natural capital, social and cultural, human and economic, so on. So if I were uh, conceptually representing equity and inequity issues, I would talk about the distribution of those opportunities, capabilities, as they are sourced in those capital stocks. Sure. Is that where you're coming from, or are the available measures not those?
1: I think, to some degree, we can we can measure those sorts of things. I mean, that the, the in, in different areas, I guess, um, well-being manifests itself in different ways, and there are different ways of getting at that. I mean, a very common measure we use in looking at well-being is is looking at subjective well-being, as, I, as I'm sure you're very well aware, and. Um, that is simply a matter of asking people to to rate their you know how, how they feel about how their life is going on some sort of scale. Um, and and so that innately builds on the thoughts of things that they that are important to them and they can weight things in their own way. But we also have different obviously we have some objective measures of people's income and their wealth as much as we can get at that. And in some cases the best sources of those information um, are administrative, in some cases they are from different surveys. One of the one of the things that I think has been really useful in, in looking at wellbeing in the last couple of years is the data that we've started to build up since 2008 from the General Social Survey. And the important thing I think about that is that it covers a range of the different things that people find important mm. uh, in one single place, and what that means is that we can start to draw connections, because obviously um, these things are connected, and it's really important to understand those connections. If people are healthy, then they're more likely to be working um, they they may be more likely to have stronger social connections um, and they may be more likely to have higher life satisfaction and kind of understanding those connections is important and we can do that through looking at the general social survey
0: hmm. so so girl the the data tells us what's going on, but why is inequity important for us? Why why do we need to look at inequity uh, in terms of uh, well-being and consider that there needs to be a a public policy response to inequities? If you
2: look at the um, uh, arguments um, uh, underpinning well-being, especially intergenerational well-being across time and generations, Then you ask yourself, what are the key ingredients of that, which are the domains or subject matters of public policy? And uh, one of the issues that emerges immediately at the very basic level and fundamental level is uh, potential economic growth, which is our material well-being. Uh, The other one is social cohesion. Uh, Are we able to live in an increasingly multicultural society in a cohesive way? Both of these are fundamental pillars of sustainable intergenerational well-being. And gross inequities, which, is, which means gross disparities in opportunities and capabilities and access to capital stocks of all forms, means we are compromising both the material sources, which is growth, because if you're poor or if you're seriously disadvantaged, you won't be as productive as you could be. And if society is divided and you have no social cohesion, as we see from the Middle East and other places, then we become dysfunctional. So we're trying to say what kind of society can we create that's resilient to ongoing change, future-looking, sustainable, and in that context, equity, which is equal opportunities and capabilities, emerges as a really fundamental building block. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we can talk about how we can do that, but that is the fundamental argument.
0: Yeah. So, so there's a, a benefit to New Zealand and New Zealanders. There's more potential to be realized if we can address some of those inequities that otherwise stand in the way of opportunity. Yeah. yeah. There's
2: also the philosophical foundation of fairness, mm-hmm. of course, which is embedded in it. And we talk about inequity and so on, but the mind goes not only to the comparatives, but also absolutes about poverty, so that shouldn't be forgotten. So overall, when you just pull it together, it's really saying we want a society where everyone is an opportunity and hopefully the capability to live the kinds of lives they value and what can policy do to, to make that happen in a coherent social setting. That's really the context.
1: I, mean, I think it's really important to, um, to not only understand that the, the different aspects of well-being are connected with each other but that the well-being of an individual is connected to the well-being of other individuals around them. We live in a society, we live in cities, we live in communities and in families and if uh, some members of our families or our communities are doing worse than others then that then has flow-on effects.
2: In that very context uh Uh, A a very recent contribution by uh, Professor Rajan, uh, who is now at Chicago University, who used to be the uh, uh, head of the Central Bank in India, wrote a book called The Third Pillar. And uh, the argument is uh, we talk about markets and we talk about government, but we have forgotten communities. And he says that the kinds of issues we are talking about, social, environmental and so on, are begging for involving communities in a very meaningful way. Not in terms of consulting them after we made up our minds, but uh, making sure that they participate in identifying what are the key issues for them, uh, what are the key ingredients of a good life, and making sure that we have cohesive communities. Because a lot of the things we can do actually can be done at community level.
0: So, so this has been a, a priority not just for the current government but for the previous government as well. Uh, the previous government had uh, programs around social investment um, and the current government has, has programs around investing for social well-being and growing well-being and the recent well-being budget of course. Are, are the actions by the government, this one and the previous one, are they sufficient to address the kind of inequities that we're talking about? Uh, are, are they really just starting to explore the landscape? Where where are we in terms of the the hype curve around inequity and well being?
1: I guess what I would say is that the a lot of the steps of in in terms of social investment and and really the evolution into investing for social well being since then uh, are. Steps in the right direction, I, I feel, and the, and I would welcome them. Um, and it, you know, I think it's important that we do make decisions as much as possible based on sound evidence. Um, and, and social investment was certainly driving towards that. And also thinking about all of the broader things that are important to people, and not just focusing on the immediate things that we're, that we're impacting on. You know, it is important to understand that if uh, if an employment program helps someone to gain get a job they're not just going to get more money but they'll also uh, develop better social connections and perhaps avoid a whole lot of other uh, negative outcomes um, so that's that's really important I think um, I guess that I think it definitely is is a starting point I think um, personally I think there's um, there are always going to be gaps in our evidence base and we can't oversell um, what we are going to be able to answer or not answer through evidence, and and so, I guess the other the other point I, I guess I'd make is that a lot of these inequities that we see or the 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 unequal outcomes certainly are uh, are very long standing and and they they often are intergenerational, and I think it will be naive to assume that um, by by taking this broader view alone, by um, using evidence more effectively, that we're going to fix that overnight. And that is a, is a very gradual process. And it does require quite a um, strong political will and uh, backed up by you know uh, people wanting that change um, to address some of these issues, I think.
0: Yeah. So, so, So there are... Challenges around the data doesn't necessarily tell us all the things that we might need to know. There are challenges around the the policy tools that we have, given that they, they can't address all of these issues overnight. They require significant amounts of political will, but also challenges around the fact that you need... Uh, business and communities engaged in the process as well to be able to bring about the kinds of changes that we're talking about here. This isn't just something that government can do on its own.
2: The point I want to make is, um, if you look at the recent history of New Zealand since the 70s, 80s, first we started realizing that our economic performance was uh, uh, getting a bit mediocre. Uh, as assessed, for example, by uh, productivity data. Then we started realizing that some of the social outcomes are deteriorating and now we are very aware of environmental outcomes. And this is not political. All political parties have their heart in the right place. They are all aware of these. Data is emerging, which is informing us about these things, as well as through surveys and so on, what people really care about. And then we can do a lot of modeling work, which Treasury and others are doing in terms of priorities. And in terms of given those priorities um, or reflection of it as well, where can we get the biggest bang for the buck? Uh, Given the interdependencies between health and uh, pollution and uh, various other factors, where could we invest to get the best benefit or what are the sets of things? So that's all good. And that's... The thing that is missing right now, and we are all so-called naked about it, is we don't know what to do about it. Mm-hmm. To give you an example, there is humongous evidence that shows that mental health is a huge issue, Absolutely. both globally and New Zealand. But everybody candidly, privately says we have no idea what to do about it because to use jargon is a wicked problem. And there are so many interdependencies and that's where the latest sort of attempt to deal with it is saying maybe if we turn the table around and start with communities, there's something there that we can build on. Mm -hmm. Uh, Still supporting and working with them, but maybe that's where we could start. So it's the how is the point. The budget throws out millions of dollars of numbers that look very impressive. They also say we care about child poverty and so on. That's fantastic. It's all data-based but nobody knows what to do about it to have an enduring positive impact. Mm-hmm. This is the challenge of the next 20 years.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. I, I, mean, I think I, I absolutely agree with um, Harold. The, the, there are a number of areas where we have uh, reasonably good evidence around, um, you know, direct impact evaluation evidence, we, we have a reasonable idea of which employment programs are successful and which ones are less effective, and we're able to make decisions based on that, um, but those are in areas where we've got, uh, where we know exactly who's undertaking which service, we have um, good data about the outcomes, and we're able to build that, but there are a number of areas where we just don't know what's effective, and I think we do need to use we need to see evidence is much more broadly than just the the kind of empirical numbers, um, and and look at you know what what has been shown to be be best practice overseas. How can we adapt that to work in New Zealand? Um, what does the qualitative evidence say? You know, I think qualitative research is really important in terms of understanding the why's about why something might not be working or how we might be able to improve it. So we really need to bring all of that together, and that means that. Um, certainly, for the foreseeable future that we 're still going to have to see uh, policy making and, and uh, service design as being as much art as science you know it 's about taking that evidence and knowing knowing how to interpret it and, and making some uh, judgment calls about how we how we deal with it and what we do the,
2: the other uh, dimension that um Focusing on uh, not exclusively, but putting more weight on community participation, uh, is it brings to the fore the importance and impact of culture uh, because that's so critical in finding solutions, as it were, to our issues. And it gets us to uh, engage more multiculturally, given the kind of society we're evolving into. So it has all kinds of other positive, so called externalities in terms of social cohesion and all that, which are both. Uh, so the economic po- uh, impact, but also
0: uh, broader social and environmental. So so what I'm hearing is, sounds pretty challenging, for, certainly from a government's perspective. Governments aren't used to standing up there saying, oh, well, we don't actually know what the answer is. They're kind of more used to uh, deciding what a policy should be or an intervention should be, and putting that in place, and then the money flows and the services are designed in the center and changed. What we seem to be talking about here is quite a different model where there is a process of gathering evidence, but even the evidence won't tell you definitively what the right answer is. And then there's a process of perhaps of co-designing with communities what will actually work for them. And in fact, some of that will help to build an evidence base for the future in terms of what works and what doesn't work, because some of those things that we design may not work.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with that. And I think that um, there, there needs to be a bit, of a, a bit of an appetite to try things and to be prepared to fail. Um, and uh, and I don't know that we necessarily have a good history of that. The, the, no government likes to be seen to fail. Um, but sometimes you know we need to try things and we don't we haven't necessarily always piloted new ideas or, or done we, we haven't run a lot of randomized trials in this country which you know uh, provide very good evidence around effectiveness um, so some of those things I think will be um, are quite important as well but certainly you know moving out from the center and seeing uh, how community led approaches or community co-designed approaches work uh, could be important
2: just building on that the um There was a a fantastic article saying that it's okay when businesses say, I will try 100 things and 10 of them will work, 90 will fail. And the the political dialogue needs to mature to be able to have that. That's the point that is extremely important. The other thing we shouldn't miss is that another lever the centre has to align with uh, giving more uh, scope for community involvement is uh, the budget. In other words, you can change the way you manage the budget whereby, in some cases where you're collecting collective outcomes, then you can still manage the budget allocation but hold the communities accountable for delivering agreed outcomes, which then, if delivered, can get more money. So there's a Public Finance Act and related matters interface, as well as State Sector Act review is agonizing about how to make the central silos work together the additional dimension is how do those silos link up to the communities uh, collectively. So those are additional dimensions that will emerge over the next 10 years, I think.
0: Mm. So some some of the recent conversations that, that have been had between local and central government around where does responsibility sit for decisions it is a bit of an example of, I guess, uh, challenging the the status quo around uh, central government decision-making around all aspects of your health and social policy and and so on, but actually it's just a small part of it because we need to encompass communities into that conversation as well. What decisions best sit with communities themselves, uh, not even local or central government.
2: And when you're dealing with communities, one challenge when you visit the communities, they... uh, bring to the table is that when we mean communities we mean the people the ultimate people we want to actually help and make participants in the conversations those very people do not have the time or the resources to be involved so even when you try to reach out to communities you're unable to engage with those very people
1: you want to have a conversation with so it's that's another challenge. There there is also quite a pragmatic challenge for us in terms of um, operating, designing services and also evaluating services, because if services are being run in different ways in different places um, and uh, not in a centralised way, it's much harder to, to gather the evidence we need on their effectiveness, um, and, and that's not to say we shouldn't be doing it but, it, but we need to be aware that there are challenges there as well.
0: Well, it certainly sounds like there's a lot of work to be done on both the data and evidence side and also on the public policy side moving forward and addressing inequities. I think that's just about all we have time for in this episode. Thanks again to Girol Karajolu Carag- and Keith McLeod for your time today. Check out these and all the latest State of the State articles at deloitte.com slash nz state of the state, where you can also subscribe for future articles. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. Over the course of this podcast series, we'll be talking in more depth about inequities from a number of perspectives, including civic engagement, creating an equitable tax system, cultural diversity, inclusive growth, digital inclusion, and our recommendations for a way forward. Thanks for listening.